Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 757 with Nancy Batista Caswell. I'm still a firm believer that, you know, we've just got to like fail, fail fast and move on, essentially, you know, like you can't let things rent space in your head and you ultimately um, have to learn from those experiences that we're all kind of going through the day on. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What are you doing right now? I'll tell you what you're doing if you're in the market for a new POS. You're headed to toasttab.com slash unstoppable to set up your own demo, and you're going to find out why it's the most recommended POS on the show by a landslide. Guys, if you use my link, not only will you get the incentives that Toast is offering you by using the link I'll also share my commission with you. I'll split my commission with you 50-50 after taxes. That's about $2,000. So I'll send you a check for $1,000 to say thank you and to help support you during these weird times. Again, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And Seven Shifts is trusted by over 400,000 restaurant professionals because it gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com. Slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Are you still manually processing your accounts payable? No, 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 no. You need to be using Plate IQ. Plate IQ is the most intelligent and intuitive way to remotely manage your accounts payable. With Plate IQ, you can pay your vendors with a fraction of the time and manpower it took before. To learn more, head over to www.plateiq.com slash unstoppable. That's www.plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you'll get 25% off implementation. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but just a quick reminder that we have brand new sponsors right now. We're working with Seven Shifts and Plate IQ. So if you guys are in the market for a accounts payable automation system or a labor management system, uh, then please, please, please consider my sponsors. Times are weird right now. They're taking a risk on Restaurant Unstoppable, and let's make sure we we reward them for taking that risk and uh, support the show by using the links, using my sponsors. If you guys are interested in in that labor management, seven shifts, or uh, an automated accounts payable service like Plate IQ, then these are great services. The reason why they are sponsors is because they're being recommended on the show. I do my best to partner with companies that I know my guests are recommending because I want you guys to have confidence and trust in Restaurant Unstoppable. So these are services that you will be happy with and let's show our love. Let's support the sponsors. Let's support the show. We take care of our sponsors. They take care of me. It's that simple. Thank you guys in advance for supporting the show. So today we're talking to Nancy Batista Caswell and Nancy's first time on the show was episode 14. Restaurant Unstoppable has evolved so much since that first interview uh, and really this, in, this interview today was kind 
kind of a reflection of my attempts over the, the going into 2020 to, to slow down. This is before COVID-19. My attempts were to slow down, to recenter and to really ask myself who's already in my network, who we need to get to know better, uh, who we can go deeper with. And honestly, when I first had Nancy on the show, the show was so different back then. The, the show has come such a long way. It's like I've never even had her on the show. I was able to get her whole, sh- her whole story today. So again, Nancy Batista Caswell, she is the founder of Caswell Dining Group, which started with, uh, Saya in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which uh, ended up moving across the street. When they moved out of that space, they ended up putting Brian Oyster Bar in uh, at their original Saya location. Uh, and then in, I think their latest restaurant, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it comes out in the story, 2017, they opened uh, Oak and Rowan in Boston. And just Nancy is a badass. She is a beast. She is a go-getter. She started so young in her career and uh, she's just been crushing it. Um, since her, I think she was 23 years old when she was running her first restaurant and she's just been, uh, she's been unstoppable ever since it all comes out in her story. Here it is. I hope you enjoy it. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest. She is the proprietor of Caswell's restaurant group, which consists of say kitchen and bar, Brian oyster, crudo and chops, both located in Newburyport, Massachusetts and Oak and Rowan uh, located in Boston, Massachusetts. Nancy Batista Caswell. Are you feeling unstoppable today? I am Eric. I yes. Am. And yeah. I, I'm so excited to have you back on the show. Nancy was episode 13. I know. Crazy. And you were such an incredible guest. Uh, <laughs> really great conversation. A lot of emphasis on just developing people, giving people opportunity. Uh, you really focus on your people. And I love that. And I know that's mm-hmm. going to come out in today's conversation um warning i've come a long way as an interviewer nancy yeah. was great <laughs> i'm whenever i listen to those interviews I, sh- I i just cringe at myself but it's definitely worth listening to you uh so today let's get that motivational inspirational yeah. ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us um i'm still gonna stick to everything that i've kind of built on since episode 13 and I, i'm still a firm believer that especially in this day and age too like you know, we've just got to like fail, fail fast and move on essentially, you know, like you can't let things rent space in your head and you ultimately um, have to learn from those experiences that we're all kind of going through the day on. Is there one experience that you're reflecting on specifically that I should make note of? We can unpackage later. (laughs) You know, I just, I guess so. I mean, I've let some people kind of come and go out of our restaurant group that I kind of wished that maybe I invested a little bit more time in or, um, you know, and, I've always wanted to circle back with them and bring them back in some fashion. I find myself doing that now with some of the chefs that have come and gone as we are in COVID and ultimately a lot of people are looking to have in-home gatherings. I'm trying to call back those people and see if they want to reconnect and do a dinner and um, maybe fill their tank as much as it would be to, to fill my own with having them around. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's definitely been challenges where I just kind of was like, OK, they're not with the group anymore and they're moving on. And then there's a point that I've realized, like, I've missed that person as a part of my life. Mm. We, we let a lot of people into this business and they become family. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it really, at the end of the day, I think business is just about relationships. And I think we forget that it's all it's just a way to manage relationships. That's all business is. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, so absolutely uh, love that focus on relationships. But where does it make sense to start telling your story? So the first time we had you on the show, we kind of just shot well, some questions at you. Yeah. We're going to slow it down today. We're really going to pull back the layers on who Nancy is. So right. when did you know that this was your path, that, that this was going to be your career? 
you know, I fell in love with the grind of the front of the house business. Um, and that was, you know, pretty early on. I started in this business in a donut shop. Uh, my parents immigrated here in 1979 from Portugal. I feel like it's in their blood to also be hospitable and genuine and host people. Yeah. Um, restaurants were a big part of my life growing up as just a, a pastime for my family. But also my mother cooked in a kitchen um, as a second job for her. And I you know, sat in stock pots and watched her after school. Um, so... I definitely uh, have had the restaurant business in my blood since, you know, very early on, as long as I can probably even remember. I remember eating kale soup in Portugal and hating it. And now it's one thing that I love, right? My mother actually jokes with me on that. But, um, but yeah, I just, you know, I feel like uh, I started early on, but the grind definitely came to me when I worked at the Back Eddy. Um, I was in college and uh, I was a food runner hostess. And then Chris Lessinger was basically like, you know, why don't you consider managing? And uh, he didn't even know how old I was at the time. I was 19 and I went for it. Nice. So yeah. Chris Schlesinger is somebody we got to hover over a little bit. I like to say behind every great restaurant is a great person and behind every great restaurant tour is other great people who help create that person. Mm-hmm. Was he one of these people that really influenced who you are today as a mentor or what was that relationship like? Yeah, I think the whole organization at that time definitely showed me the way. You know, I had grown up in kitchens that were definitely more culturally influenced. You know, they were they were Portuguese restaurants um, that my mother was cooking in. And so to have the exposure to somebody like Chris in a more casual setting like the Back Eddy, there were certainly a lot of moments where they, I could reflect and think, okay, like if I ever were to open my restaurant, I want to do something like this. And, and there's still moments in his management style that I still embrace now um, when working with my people. So, yeah. uh, you know... I think the biggest thing for me was that Chris was a chef in the kitchen, but he very much had a place in the dining room and he uh, very much understood the challenges of running the dining room. I find that that's a difficult thing for chefs right now and probably something that they're finding um, a little bit more, uh, you know, anxiety about in the moment of COVID. But, you know, they the idea of being present in the dining room, either having to talk to your guests, being vulnerable about that feedback or just being able to do the job of somebody in the front of the house is something that a lot of chef owners will realize quickly when they open their own restaurant that they either don't have enough experience with or want to learn it. Yeah, I, th- I think I want to um, unpackage this more real quick. Um, who is Chris Schlesinger? I'm always afraid to say his name. Sles- yeah, Chris Schlesinger. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So Chris Schlesinger uh, is, I think he's like six-time or seven-time book author, um, specifically more focused on grilling for sure. Um, he was, he's been a part of several different restaurants um, and has such a great uh, relationship with so many other chefs yeah. as well. But, um, you know, I think most of us know him for the Blue Room. Then we also know him for East Coast Grill. Um, we know him for the Back Eddy in Westport. Yep. Uh, and then he did a short stint um, uh, with Dave at uh, the Automatic, which unfortunately did close during COVID. Dave. Um, Kegel. Okay. Um, and then um, he's, I think, just kind of on the sidelines now. But, um, yeah. Just a great, talented. Chef. I know he was like James Beard, like like the mid to late nineties best mm-hmm. chef northeast. So um, yeah, I mean, definitely somebody you want to go work for and learn from. Absolutely, yeah. right? Um, is are his restaurants still around to this day? Or 
No, I don't. I mean, the back Eddie's still around, but he, uh, I'm sure he still spends some time consulting on it, but yeah. he's not a partner on I mean, he, that project anymore. He started his restaurant tour almost 40 years ago. Yeah, like for sure. Yeah. So back to your original point of the, finding that balance between the back of house and the front of house and mm-hmm. engaging with your guests. And we started this interview saying that it's all about relationships. Yeah. And we, I think we forget that we, we make it about the food sometimes and we forget that it's about the person that we're serving the food to, not necessarily the food itself. Do you exactly. agree or disagree with that statement? I do. I, I think that it's so important for uh, people in the dining room to have a voice, you yeah. know? And I think that in a time where competitive cooking, you know, I think even we're going to talk a little bit about COVID, right? And I don't want it to just be about COVID because hopefully at some point we're going to get through this. But, you know, we'll I think that's... That a, for the Yeah, end. yeah. <laughs> I think that the challenge really is right now that people are, you know, they want creativity but they also want uh, a full understanding of what they're going to be getting right because the value and the um, expectation of the experience is definitely something that guests are driving right now and so chefs typically who are more creative and more competitive in their style cooking can find themselves very much making food that you know stimulates them and in return we have to educate the front of the house staff to make sure that the guest fully understands it Mm. you know so there's a little bit of you know eating a slice of humble pie at the moment and trying to be everything for everyone to a certain extent but but trying to fill our own tanks at the same time and so um I find that the people in the front of the house are super important to the business, not only because of the steps of service that they're offering, but really because they are like the billboard for, you know, the chef and what we've got going on. Yeah, I'm going to go into a little bit of a rabbit hole and pull back a layer. You, you mentioned the, the significance of educating our staff. Right. What does that look like for you? How do what does you, when you're adding a new menu item to your you know offering? What, what does that look like? That process of educating your staff look like? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that it's been challenging at the moment right now because typically we used to find ourselves very much focused around training and education. We used to fill our Fridays or Thursdays with um, a staff training. We used to calendar that time, um, whether it was bringing in vendors that um, spoke to their own products or, you know, wine reps that spoke to their own, um, you know, bottles of wine. We, We would kind of hold our management accountable for creating some kind of training flow at least once a month, if not twice a month, um, due to the challenges now that we're facing, you know, and the limited staff, it's been really hard. And that's been the part that's like, you know, trying to maintain morale and trying to continue to, you know, I don't know, have those one-on-one moments with your staff to educate them or get them excited about a product is, is hard right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in our Boston location, um, our chef there, uh, and, all of our chefs, really, um, Mikey and, and Bree and Andrew, they, they do such a great job of very much creating a dish and then sitting around a table and talking about it, whether the dish continues to evolve, whether it's missing something. Um, and that's really fun for me to watch because it's it's definitely a collaborative focus on the dish yeah. um, that brings it together and, and allows people with a little bit more um, sophisticated palate to truly know where chef is going yeah, with it. Yeah, what's that conversation look like? Kind of paint that picture to see what a good construction of conversation should look like yeah i mean i think that basically it comes with them like you know they'll always talk about the plate up right and so they put the dish together i'm sure on the back end they they're especially right now dealing with um vendors and trying to see whether or not they can procure items and how long it'll be available to them uh because that's been challenging 
but uh, so they they put the dish together, they plate it, they kind of taste it together. Um, The chef behind it seems to identify the ingredients and where they were going with it. Uh, And they taste it. And sometimes it's a total success with moderate tweaks. Sometimes it seems like they just want to scratch it after they run it as a special or for the weekend. Um, But once it gets put on the menu at this point, it then goes to staff pre-meal and then it's fully um, discussed. At that point, our management team creates a menu spec on it. It gets circulated um, amongst the team through an online scheduling app. That's kind of been our form of communication, especially right now. And um, it gives them the details that they need for the dish. Uh, see, this is why I love the pullback layers. Because we're starting yeah. to get into like the systems and the process and how to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. So after you, you it goes through the process of, and you say, okay, we're going to make this a dish, you create a menu spec, which is basically like what the the ingredients, the, the story behind it, any important information exactly. about the purveyor, stuff like that. Allergen related things. Yep. And then real quick, what, what does the lifestyle or what, not the lifestyle, but the life um, cycle of that spec look like? You said you create the spec and then where does it go? It goes onto a scheduling app that we're using that's a basic platform for all of our communication. What are you using? Uh, we use Seven Shifts. Okay. Um, we've been with them from oh, the beginning. By yeah. the way, Seven Shifts, I think as of maybe not this episode, but the episode that goes live on Monday is a current sponsor. No way. That's amazing. We did not plan this. I that's never plan awesome. these things. Yeah. I love when my guests organically recommend the, the, the companies that are Yeah. We felt, I almost felt like we were show. like a beta with them. Like we've certainly tested um, the product out. We've liked the way it's grown um, as a forum of communication that makes it easy for management, but also just, you know, the importance of being able to shut off when we walk out of the restaurant is huge. And so, you know, for, for staff to not feel like they just have to be texting as a form of communication, it's a nice way for management to be able to have their own outlet to check in on staff and communicate through that vessel. Nice. Um, okay. So, um, this menu spec goes mm-hmm. into your scheduling. It gets pushed to everybody. Where else does it go? Anywhere else? It doesn't. I mean, at that point, it then goes up on you know walls within the restaurants just to make sure that if somebody um, needs just reaffirmation during the shift that they have a place that they can go to on it. I love, I love that we're getting into this nitty gritty so early out of the gates. Uh, I have to remember that we have your whole story to share. Yeah. So let's bring it back to the timeline. Uh, any other lessons Chris taught you? Uh, any like business lessons, life lessons? I don't know how significant he was in your life or not, but... Um, I mean, I think that the most... I mean, he taught me a lot in the sense of, you know, not worrying about who's in the dining room and treating everybody equally within the dining space. He also taught me a lot about how to have fun in the dining room. Um, I feel like that's been a challenge for me personally. I take my job pretty seriously. And so, um, you know... At times, I'm challenged to make the space feel fun. Mm. It feels like, you know, there's an expectation to be created. And sometimes I'm not as probably fun as some other restaurants um, could potentially uh, be. Um, But, you know, he kept it fun and he kept it light and he kept it exciting. And um, for that, he had certainly built a tribe around himself where people stayed for a very, very long time. And he had a strong, regular clientele. And for that... It's taught me a lot about how to keep those connections alive. I love it. So where, what else do we need to know about your story, your come up? And I know you went to Johnson & Wales. I did, yeah. I went to Johnson & Wales. And so I left um, uh, the back, Eddie, 
after graduating, essentially, I spent one more summer there. And then I realized, you know, I shouldn't be collecting unemployment as a college graduate uh, when I when I don't have the choice, when I do have a choice to not be doing that. Um, And I wanted to I I think uh, at the moment, I didn't realize what the transition would be like for me. But then now looking back at it, I realized, wow, that was a perfect pivot for me. Um, I started to work for a developer, Stephen Karp, um, for New England Development, and uh, that brought me here to Newburyport. I essentially started to learn how to project manage construction, and I started to see restaurants from scratch. And in a corporate place like um, New England Development, it really exposed me to many different layers that sometimes you don't see with an independent restaurateur like budgets and, you know, capital expenditures and capital budgets and really the, the, the pipeline of, you know, how you get things done. So and you went to uh, Johnson & Whale for uh, hospitality business um, management. B- business management. Yeah. Um, were, when, you were, when you joined New England Development, were you going with the intention to learn about how to develop restaurant spaces? Was that the idea or was there any intentionality behind that? You know, it was, um, I found my voice there uh, Interestingly enough, and, and that, I guess, set the tone for what I would become. You found your voice. Yeah. There. What do you mean by that? So I, I came with an intro. I came to a restaurant here in Newburyport. So first of all, I fell in love with Newburyport because it's like Westport, so right? It's another yeah. port, yeah. a waterfront access. And I, I came to a restaurant that had been recently purchased by their organization. And it was it was failing. Um, and, and only in a way that it was failing because it hadn't seen any love in a long time. Uh, and I think that's their interest in probably purchasing it. So, so. New England uh, Development purchased the restaurant because it was failing. And they were basically they're just seeing it as an asset that they could... Bring to their portfolio along the way. Yeah. So right now, Steve Karp um, owns a significant about amount of Newburyport, um, Michael's Harbor side, uh, where um, a lot of the real estate where like Tuscan Seagrill is now, okay. the marinas, a good amount of State Street. He does not own the buildings that I am in currently, but um, he does have a big investment, um, several millions okay. in Newburyport. So you joined this team. Was it? Were you thinking you're going to get out of hospitality, or is it just a coincidence? Was it? Was it was it- just a coincidence. Okay. You know, I was coming out of an, a, an, a headhunter who had read about me, and I kind of didn't really know what I was getting into, but. Uh, I, I decided to jump on board to come to Newburyport. I moved to Salem, Mass, and I basically started this little restaurant. I worked in it uh, as it was, as they had purchased it. Okay. So this is after you're working for New England developers. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, can you timestamp this for me? Where are we? We're in uh, 2005. Okay. We're in 2005. I graduated in 2004. And so we... Uh, so. And to be honest, I, I guess I should say that I, I was hired to run the restaurant, and that, but I knew that Steve Karp was the developer um, that owned it. And, and forgive my ignorance, but Steve Karp, is he the, the uh, owner of New England Development? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Thank mm-hmm. you. And with that, we, so I worked in this restaurant. Again, it was charming. It was 10 Center Street. And it, uh, you know was essentially just tired. It needed love. It needed a little TLC. This is Salem, Massachusetts. This is here in Newburyport. Oh, where was Salem? I just moved there. Oh, so you were from Salem. You moved to Newburyport. Okay, I got a little turned around there. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so 2005, you opened your first restaurant, 10... um, 10 Center Street. 10 10 Center Street. Okay. What... I feel like there might be some some lessons we can pull from working with a developer, especially one who focuses on 
uh, restaurant commercial space. Mm-hmm. It's safe to say, right? Right. So what were the biggest lessons that you learned from that experience opening and developing in, I guess, I mean, what exactly was your role there? Right. So basically what happened was they hired me as a restaurant manager. I worked for a couple months before we started diving into to budgets and really having responsibilities with financial control of the restaurant. We were sitting there kind of talking about a lot of the nickel and diming expenses. The reality, in my opinion, was that the top line just was struggling. And so in a conversation around the table in one monthly P&L meeting, I, like I said, I used my voice and I basically said, you know, what we're sitting here doing is just nickel and diming certain expenses. But the reality is the top line is what's suffering. And so um, I kind of left the meeting thinking, I think I just lost my job because like, why would they need me? If- you, when you say, yeah, when you say that the top line suffering's Really break that down, the, the, the specifics of how, how and why it was suffering. Just the sales behind the building all of it in general. You know, we, we were one of the largest restaurants here in Newburyport, and we were only filling a small capacity of it on a nightly basis. And that was just basically what was known to the town as Molly's Pub. And uh, everything upstairs was, you know, really just... N- there was no intention behind, you know, going up there or dining up there. Um, and it was... You know, I think a a project for them that they probably realized was going to need to happen at some point, but I think I just accelerated it a little bit. So, so was it a volume issue? Yeah, it was a volume issue. It was also just you know a little bit off the beaten path, and um, you know, I, I mean, I don't. I honestly spent so much more time focused on the future of it that I didn't really dissect the the what it was i know that it was certainly a nostalgic spot for many people i know that they had so many different um celebrations there and people had a lot of family memory there but um you know i took that into consideration when um the organization new england development came back to me and said if you can create a restaurant what would you create and you know we pitched a business plan and I got into my first project management role. So How old are you at this time? I was 23 years old. That's amazing. Yeah. And <laughs> wow. I loved the chef at the time. Um, I, I really did enjoy him. I didn't want him to go anywhere. I believed in his food. And we went into this project and, you know, we built a bar upstairs. We invigorated the whole second floor. We got to the point where we found that the second floor was just really just, you know, everything we needed it to be. And thought that the first floor then needed some love, like we were going to scrap the whole idea of Molly's Pub. Um, And we did that. And, you know, at that time, it was very much a restaurant that uh, I think set the tone for Newburyport uh, dining in that way. Um, And I've met some really incredible people. And during that time, I found myself just falling in love with the community and falling in love with the city. And, and that's what led me here today and how I have restaurants here. Yeah. I, I don't think in my 700 plus interviews that I've ever come across somebody who has entered into the industry through a development channel. Like yeah. it's weird because it sounds like your, your, your trajectory was very traditional, but then I never, I've never seen anybody get into that development side, but I think that that's so important. Yeah. It's one thing to run restaurants. It's another thing to, to build and develop restaurants. It's a whole nother set of skills. And okay. Expertise. Yeah. And honestly, and that's some of the calls that I do get from colleagues and, and friends in this industry, because what ends up happening is, you know, they hit, the glass ceiling in their restaurant, whether it's they've been the executive chef there for so long or they're, you know, they are been a restaurant manager for so long. And so the next step is to naturally either open your own. But if you don't have the exposure to some of the budget stuff that you do see sometimes with development, that becomes a concern. And then the second piece is 
the idea of construction, you know, like we know what we love. We know what we do, yeah. right? We, we know how to put great food on a plate. We know how to serve our guests, but how do you learn how to get all your applications and how do you learn how to, um, you know, manage a, a construction yeah. site? And then I think that's oftentimes where you hear a lot of restaurants are going into their, you know, opening with a lot of debt or in additionally incurred costs that they weren't planning on I, managing. That's the other thing too. I think people, they have this vision for what they want their dream restaurant to be and they think that they have to achieve that on day one. Right. And like they don't scale into it slowly. They don't build a team around themselves to execute it, you know, and like all these things. Uh, I'm really curious, um, what was that transition from going, from being on the development team, mm -hmm. right, to them handing you a restaurant and saying, make it your own? Yeah. What, how did, how did that, like, did you own it at this point? Were you a no. partner? Like, what did that look like? I was just their manager. Okay. And uh, I think that for me, I think about it now and I think about, wow, you know, again, I didn't think that that was going to be um, the progression of my career. I, but then looking back at it, I realized, wow, that really taught me a lot. Yeah. And I was... I was so scared. I mean, I was 23 years old and oh I was gosh. like, I just told them like their restaurant isn't going like, to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, okay, like go manage a construction job, you know? And you're like, create a budget. And you're like, wait a second, hold on. This is crazy. Um, but, uh, I find that I, I, I mean, I think that ultimately at the end of the game, the, the, that, that project led me to a place where I learned a lot about myself and yeah. I realized that I, uh, I'm very capable of uh, an overflowing plate and I can s most of the time get myself out of it. Okay. Um, how do you manage your plate, your overflowing plate? Yeah. Give us some, some of the things you do for like time management, project management. <laughs> what are some of the tricks? You know, so I'm a, I'm pretty organized when it comes to my schedule. And as far as like my time goes, I realize that, you know, um, there's definitely been peaks and moments you know, I'll, I'll take into consideration, like even like Oak and Rowan's opening, you know, and, you know, I realized I really wanted to do a restaurant in Boston. I had two restaurants at the moment in Newburyport and I am thinking like, how am I going to be everywhere all of the time? Right. But it, it certainly came down to being a part of the team and having the people that I did have in place to be able to begin to stretch and do a third location. But, you know, Personally, I've always felt like my time is always spent like on the floor talking to people. And so I, that's what I enjoy doing. And, and I wanted to make sure that I could find the way to get it done. There's been times in the last like four years with Oak and Rowan where I haven't been able to find the time to be in every restaurant. Yeah. Um, that's been tough for me and certainly a challenge that I've needed to overcome about whether it's you know, trusting the people that I have or building different systems where I can still get the level of communication that I need. Yeah. I mean, I live here in Newburyport, right? And I've said this from the beginning, like the last thing I want is to be standing in a Marshall's line and getting feedback about the dining experience they had last night. Right. And not knowing if that was positive or negative because I don't have the communication. Well, I was curious about that because your first two restaurants um, that you owned personally were mm -hmm. uh, Seiya, which is across the street. But you guys moved that original location, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so Saya actually was here. Um, oh. I, I found this location after um, leaving uh, 10 Center Street and the development company. And I took like two or three months off. And I found um, this location on the internet. 
and I didn't have a big budget, and I opened Saya here. Okay, so I guess what I was saying is like, um, what I, the point I was going to make is, you went from having two locations, mm-hmm. um, like literally across the street, like little right. diagonally across the street from each other, to. Uh, having a third location that's a forty-five minute drive with no traffic, right? right? And like that's a, it's hot, and like that when you can be across the street, you can be any, like if you, if you have to run across the street, you can. But right. now you got to get in a car and go forty-five minutes. Was that a hard transition? Should we wait until later to talk about this? I kind of feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. We might be getting ahead of ourselves, yeah. but I, but honestly, I, I mean, I think that uh, yeah, I, I I'd say yes, it was challenging, you know. And I think that for a lot of people who either listen to your podcast or ask me about it, the real, the, the idea of opening in another city or even another state has its challenges for mm-hmm. sure. And it's really about you as a business owner and how you can handle it, you know, and, and what things you might need to give up and what's most important for you. I'm going to put this on the back burner because I think there might be some great lessons you can give us on how to, to juggle those things and systems you can put in place to juggle these yeah. things or how to build people up so you can recreate yourself and others. I'm sure there's some advice around that. But back to what we we're talking about, uh, you learned a lot. You said you learned so much about yourself at, at 10 Center Street. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, 10 Center Street. Um, you learned that you were capable of handling these big projects. What else did you learn about yourself? I thought that I was pretty resilient. Like I thought that, you know, I knew the job and I knew how to get it done. And I think that I can see a job through for the most part, like from start to finish. You know, I don't give up on it necessarily quickly. I I feel like, you know, I'm not going to just quit at it. I'm going to see it through. And if I fail at it, I failed. But like I'm going to see it through. And, you know. I saw that restaurant, which is something that I think a lot of restaurateurs and, and chefs see, you know, in those first couple months of when you put so much work into the construction piece of it, and then it's like blossoming. You're like, wow, this is the moment, right? Yeah. There's that like too deep at the bar, and you want to jump on the bar to help the bartender to put out drinks. You want to, you know, get on the line on the kitchen and expo um, with them. You want to get on the door and greet the host. Like, you know, there's just that moment where, you know, you look back at it and you think, how can I how did I do all that? <laughs> but you, you, you do. And, and it's, it's weird. It's on, so on weird that, that note, we can yeah, do it. Absolutely. On that note of looking back, hindsight being 2020, being the seasoned restaurant tour you are today, you're talking about a lot of the things you learned about yourself or what you're capable of, but knowing what you know, what would you have done differently? What were the, where were the, like, you know, what were the areas you could have definitely improved on back in the day that you reflecting back at that time? I mean, I think that I, you know, I, th- I guess I lead by example in the sense of my intentions, you know, like I want the conversation and the culture of the restaurant to be all about food and wine and I want it to be about service and I want everybody to get along and I want it to be organized and I, you know, um, hope that our expectations that way. I think that sometimes the people that were around me might have thought like maybe I was, you know, taking advantage of their time a little bit and saying that like, you know, you have to have trainings every week and you need to be a part of this and you should be arriving early if you know we're going to have, you know, X amount of people on the books, like, you know, getting to connect with people alongside of me that still thought like this can be my life, but it doesn't have to be my whole life. And that's something that I've even learned now during this time, you know, like my restaurants are my life, but they can't be my whole life. Yeah. So your, your big struggle then was finding that balance and mm-hmm. still to this day is finding that work life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Um, well, I realized quickly that, uh, I definitely wanted to do the job for myself. I thought that, you know, oftentimes I was working myself 
and, and not just in a way physically, but also emotionally and spiritually where, you know, I was really, you know, emptying my tank on the creative piece. I was putting every different idea that I possibly could into it. And, um, at that time I had met my husband who very much would tell me, you know, if you're going to work this hard, you should consider working this hard for yourself. And, uh, sometimes you need a partner like that to, 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 to truly understand what you're capable of doing. Yeah. So when did that, that, you know, he planted the seed. When was that? It was in 2009. Okay. And, uh, I was, I was getting to a point with the restaurant here where I'd been here for a long time. They had made some changes in the structure. Um, not that they were necessarily when negative. When you say here, you're talking about this physical space we're in right now, Brian? No, um, okay. 10 Center. I was going to say, I'm getting yeah. confused. Okay, yeah, <laughs> keep yeah, going. no, 10 Center. And, uh, and I just, I was at the point of basically like it's time for me to move on. I always felt like I was with my restaurants for like four to five years. I feel like that was the time I chunk. needed to, to spend, you know, even even right now when I interview people, I kind of am surprised. I'm like, how as a general manager, did you imp- like leave an impression on that restaurant if you're only there for a year? Like it takes so much yeah. time to really dig in, you know. So in that case for me, I'd been there for like four years and I was ready. Um, so what did you get from this experience that you think if there's, if you could narrow it down to one experience that had the biggest impact during this, this four years developing and, and growing, uh, 10 center street, what, what's the, the, the thing that served you the most to this day? Well, I guess I'd have to say that just in digging into the community certainly helped me mm-hmm. the most. Um, and I learned that that was a big part of what we need to do in restaurants because restaurants are a big part of the community. And I, that's it, huge. Yeah. yeah. What was your approach to digging in? Um, you know, I tried to be a part of every organization I could. And at that time, which is still happening, it still will continue to happen is, is, you know, the idea of, you know, charitable events or, uh, the connection to, you know, being somebody who can be on a board and, and assist in a different organization in any way. Can you give me some examples of some of the organizations that you were looking at as this would be a great organization to be a part of? Yeah. I mean, I still even sit on them now, but I was like one of the youngest corporators for Anna Jake's hospital here. I sit on the YWCA. I've participated in the Jeannie Geiger crisis Women's center. Uh, we've done quite a bit with our neighbor's table, which is a pantry in Amesbury. Um, and uh, we've certainly made relationships with some of our key guests in the dining room because they also support those organizations as well. What kind of commitment are you looking at with these organizations? Like how, like owning a restaurant in itself <laughs> is a huge commitment. Yeah. And then giving so much of yourself to all these different organizations, what advice do you have for first, you know, being intentional about which ones, strategic about which ones you want to be a part of. Right. And then also managing all that. Right. Early on when I first opened Saya here in the space that we're sitting in, um, you know, I got this advice from a PR company that I was potentially about to bring on. And she said that, you know, you need to make sure that you also um, share who you are in the restaurant because that's the admiration that your guests are going to have, you know, for you. And, you know, initially we thought we would design it around being female, something that was education based, you know, and we would have this kind of philanthropic mantra or um, interest in how we would invest. But, you know, Restaurants get hit up left and right for a couple of different things, and so many different chefs participate in many different organizations. Um, in my uh, commitment to Newburyport, the interest in being on all these boards is really just a, a place that I think fills me more than actually they probably even get from me, to be frank. You know, like, I mean, here we are in COVID. We fed, I think, 1,400 
meals to the nurses at Anna Jake's Hospital during that time. And the community got behind us and we, I think, raised like 600 burgers for the nurses at some point for them to come and get the Saya burger. Um, so, you know, I think overall, I, I, it's challenging for sure. Sometimes, you know, I'm sitting on a six o'clock and a seven o'clock conference call because most of the board members don't have the commitment of work at six or seven. And I've got an earbud in my ear listening to a board meeting while I'm still trying to be on the floor. Yeah. So was there any like intentionality of like, if I like not to say that we're, we're, we're joining these groups to be a part of the community. I think mm-hmm. that's really important that people don't forget that, that you're not just doing it. So you can say like, it's, a, it's not, a, you show up, you take a photo, look what I'm doing and then right. you leave, right? You have to be a part of it. Right. But were, was there strategy involved or it was just like where help needed was needed? Is, like, it was just more like where help's needed. Okay. And I think that, um, myself, I'm definitely somebody who like runs to the fire, right? Mm. Like I definitely want to fix a problem or help as best as I can or be a, you know, be a part of some kind of solution to the problem. I love it. But it's absolutely one of the biggest lessons I've learned is you have, you know, you have to either go to where you have roots or create roots where you are, mm-hmm. you know, and, you, and it takes effort and work to, to network and to, to find those people and to just to, to be a part of your community and not just leverage your community, you know, like you have to be a part of it. Right. And um, I mean, like, in our, and we try to influence and impact our staff to do the same, you know, like we want them to find their own personal outlet, like, we want them to feel good about supporting these organizations. Um, you know, in Boston, uh, some of our previous um, chefs, you know, already had their own organizations that they supported, and that was fine. You know, they can become a part of what we do too. But yeah. uh, I think it's important for, you know, individuals on a whole, whether they're in this business or not, to find a philanthropic way to understand nonprofits and yeah. how they work and how they benefit people. Yeah. Is there any other key story or key part of your come up of, of before you opened your first restaurant that we should that we're leaving out that's that's that we should know about? No, I don't think so. OK, we're going to take our first break to thank our sponsors. Seven shifts. And we'll be right <laughs> back. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure your profitability and restaurant success. Trusted by over 400 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you already use and trust like toast, turning labor into a competitive advantage for you and your business to get three months absolutely free. Head over to www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Get on it. We are back and take us to the point where you really started living intentionally to develop your dream, your, your vision for a restaurant. And it was your, and your husband put the seed in your, your head, you said, right? So mm-hmm. take it at that point. Like, what did you start doing to live intentionally to execute that first restaurant? Say, yeah. So uh, basically what I ended up doing was I started to dive into menu creation. I mean, I think that restaurants are rest, our food service and atmosphere. Right. And so, um, Saya was in as as we are in right now. It's kind of blended right now because of COVID. But, you know, it was small. It was intimate. It was brick exposed. It had the beams, you know. And um, for me, I just felt like, okay, like 
I think we should be doing like cheese and charcuterie and um, pastas and focus on like maybe Spanish and um, and Portuguese cooking because I knew a little bit about that. Um, I also feel like restaurants, again, going back to the community conversation is like if we can be more collaborative as opposed to being competitive, then ultimately we have more uh, of an opportunity to succeed and survive, yes. right? I love that mentality. I think a lot of people get in trouble and they think that, oh, I have all this competition. But the, those who work together go further together. Then you can go faster alone, but you go further together. Right. So, where were those collaborations? What were you talking about? Well, we, we started talking about okay. Well, how much money do we actually have to put into furniture? And like, what was already here? Because it was, for the most part, a pretty key turn, like a, a location, you know. Um, and the restaurant that was we were we were taking over was Raw Vegan, which was way ahead of its time. It probably would have been very right. successful now, right? That's like eleven years ago. Wow. And yeah. so. Uh, we, we started to look at, okay, like where's our money better spent? Like, you know, we've got some furniture stuff we need to work on, but we have a really beautiful bar at that time. It was copper bar. And, um, but the kitchen had like nothing because everything was like dehydrator based. So that was where most of our money was going to be spent. And, and so we started to think about, okay, if, if the money needs to go into to the kitchen, then how does that translate to the guest? Because the guest doesn't know how awesome a stove is or, you know, the walk-in that you have. So uh, we started to build on on the the menu piece and what we needed first off for for equipment in order to you know succeed at ex- executing it here in the restaurant. So, um, what was appealing about this physical space? Why was this a good spot for you? What what, what drew you to it? Again, it was still very n- nostalgic. It yeah. was like that place where like you know I'd heard over and over and over again about Scandia, which was one of the top restaurants in Newburyport years and years ago. Billy Joel was and Christy Brinkley, right yeah, oh, had cool. dined in the front window oh. and like they had all this. It's like, such an love interesting for it. front window too. Yeah. Even Jared was pointing it out when we were walking in. That like it's just like not symmetrical. It's like a little like yeah. Like, it's like, such a weird window, but it's charming. It is. Is. And, you know, it really, you know, the energy in the space when it's small and intimate is really what gets people excited personally, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can, in larger restaurants, try to achieve that by, like, turning up the volume a little bit and dimming the lights a little bit or, like, paying attention to how you seat in the dining room so there's, like, natural energy in certain areas. But the larger the restaurant gets, the more, you know, concerning you have to be about how do you create the atmosphere yeah. and that level of. But you did mention that there was a failed restaurant here. What were they closed or were they yeah. looking for an exit? Like, they were a combination of looking for an exit, but at that time had basically announced closing. Okay. Um, and they were very short-lived, like six months. They also suffered some, you know, personal, um, I think, health issues as well. Oh. And so, you know, it. I, I just looked at it like it was the right time for me. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is, were you somebody's exit strategy? I think that's such a, such a great way to get into this industry because sometimes people just get in, they have a vision, they have an idea, they go to execute it, and it doesn't, stick you yeah. know for whatever reason it might be and then they're stuck and they just want to get out yeah you know, they just want they're like we, we, we tried it wasn't right and now now we just need an exit strategy and if you can be that exit strategy for somebody if you can be their way to recover i mean was it like that at all or i mean i'll be honest with you they put the restaurant on craigslist i bought it oh. on craigslist <laughs> think about that That's transaction crazy. isn't yeah. that crazy it is crazy back then was like people were just like learning about craigslist oh, now it's crazy. like an everyday thing but right. yeah i mean so i guess so i guess that they were probably in a place where they were like you know, I got to I got to dump this quick. Yeah. I mean, they they had a long lease ahead of them. Yeah. Um, but to me, the things that I loved about that space was really just like I could work this space like I was doing, you know, two floors in my previous job. And and, you know, going back to even the back Getty, I was, you know, deck space, outdoor deck, this, you know, outdoor yeah. grill, oyster bars, outdoor bar. Well, you mean 20 strides from the front and back. Yeah. Of the house right here? And to me, I was like, I could. I can succeed at this because I can hear everything in the dining room. I can connect with everybody. I can, 
you know, hone in on the staff that I have and make sure that they're capable of serving in the way that I want them to serve. And, you know, I was so fortunate to have built, again, a small little group of individuals who followed yeah. me to open the restaurant in a, in a very non-competitive way, yeah. but in a, just a way that, you know, they wanted to work with me. And, and so there was already that familiarity for the community to walk in and recognize the bartender and, and to know the server and, and obviously to know me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I fell in love with the ability to kind of work the space. And yeah. even now, till this day, when I do work the space as it's brine, it's just a moment of like, oh, my God, this was this is so great. And, you know, maybe one day when I retire, I'll still have a little 30 seat. Yeah, restaurant. and it is a very charming, cute space. We uh, we do have the cameras rolling. So I'll make sure Jared gets some B-roll yeah. of the actual space. Uh, so how long were you in this physical space here um, before moving across the street? Yeah. So I was here for about two years okay. and uh, my husband, so I'd got married and my husband had uh, the space across the street that he owned. And so your husband's in the industry too. I didn't realize. Yeah. I mean, he does all the mechanical and HVAC um, and does a lot of construction and has assisted me in all the projects from this point forward. I actually met him through doing the project at 10 center street. Okay. Um, and he has become certainly our number one critic. Like he, he knows what he likes for food. He knows, you know, sometimes I think he's a sounding board for when I'm thinking about, you know, creative, competitive food. And he's thinking just be a little bit more casual and simple. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we made the decision to go across the street because, well, we were, you know, I guess it's also the challenge that a lot of restaurateurs have, you know, we sit there and we think like, we're doing great. So let's grow. Yeah. Right. Versus like, let's just maintain. We want more. But like, at the same time, I think you did it right. Cause you did start small. You did start with something that was manageable where you could be in all these spots with a few strides across the restaurant. You can, right. you made it small. You made it manageable and you had something special. You created something special. Um, let's talk about that success you had in the early years. Yeah. What was it? Paint that picture of like how the first couple of years went. I mean, it was wild. It was fun. It was exciting. I, I mean, you know Pat Susie. Yeah. He was our executive not, not chef. Not Pat Saucy. Yeah. <laughs> and he, you it's know, like, he filled my tank. He yeah. still does. Like, we still text, you know. Like, he, you know, he was excited about food. He was totally connected with the guest experience. Like, if I was putting on a wine, he wanted to change the whole dish completely to pair with it. You know, we were very much a team. Um, we were certain, we were definitely a team. He's and, had such incredible things to say about you, yeah. by the way. Because I actually had the, uh, the privilege of working with Pat over at um, Applecrest for a little while yeah. when he was opening that. So, really great dude. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it seemed like there was a shared vision almost like where you guys knew what you wanted and there was almost a chemistry between the two of you. Was he your first chef, your opening chef? He wasn't my opening chef. My first chef was with me, Billy for about a year and a half. Um, and just, you know, the business, um, you know, he had a wall with the business and it's not always the most healthy. Um, what do you mean by a wall? Um, you know, he started the, he, he was a broken person in the kitchen and the reality was, is that, you know, the, the hard hours and the long hours, you know, there becomes some issues that somebody personally needs to tackle their own demons. And, uh, and unfortunately that happened for us here. We've, we've connected since and we've, um, you know, moved past that time. Um, certainly incredibly talented and he set the tone for what Pat could become, um, in the space. But, um, unfortunately for us, it just was like not the right the right move. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, we kind of skimmed over like the whole process of opening the first restaurant and the, the challenges you might have faced that a lot of first time restaurants were. Well, it wasn't your first technical, re- your first yeah. owned 
restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. But what, what anything we you learned the hard way that if you could just let somebody know, like, oh, so I don't, so you don't make the same mistakes I did. Is right. there anything like that we can touch on before kind of talking about how you scaled? And grew your team. So I think that I experienced it every time I open a new restaurant. <laughs> and it's the reality of just not being like well rested and mentally there. Like we got to work on our head and we got to work on our health before we launch, you know. And we come out of a construction job and we're getting ready to go. Then we're trying to get all the certificates to get open. Then we're trying to get open. Then we go through the training. And then we're like, let's hope people come through the door, right? And then there's that anxiety of that. And then suddenly you get this influx of people walking through the door. And then you just, you're not mentally there. You're exhausted, you know, because there's just not that downtime in that first year. And then you have the elements that, you know, we've been successful at that many restaurateurs are as well, where media starts to play a big part of that. And it becomes, you know, challenging in, in all of our restaurant openings. I've been fortunate enough to to win some great awards and I've been fortunate enough to be reviewed by, you know, large media, but that doesn't come easily. You know, it's, challenging and overwhelming to think about somebody's writing and, and telling your story, but it's your story to tell. And, and, and it's, it's the same way that it weighs on a chef, you know, in, in like, well, I, you know, it's my dish and my vision and like going again, full circle on our conversation that if the server isn't fully trained in the front of the house, then how does that information in that dish properly get communicated to somebody who's about to tell your story in, you know, 500 characters. Yeah. So you said that the challenge was almost like, like you, you pride yourself in your project management and your, and your ability to manage all this stuff. But also mm-hmm. it seems to be your strength is also your weakness in the sense that like you, t- you can, you can handle it. So you do take it on, but sometimes you, you suffer as a result of it. Yeah. So how, what, what's your, so this is what you've learned. This is what you're trying to tell people to not do, right? That's the mm-hmm. original question. So what are you doing differently? How do you manage how do you take care of yourself first? How are you making right. sure Nancy's taken care of before her restaurants are taken care of? You know, I've, I'm still learning and working at this daily, right? I think that we evolve in our lives change, even from where we were day one when we first opened a restaurant. And so we, you know, whether we bring new people into our lives and, you know, relationships start or, you know, and you're forced to, you know, have to think about, okay, how do I do what I love at work, but also, you know, how do I be who I am? Like Nancy isn't just say a Brian and Oak and Rowan, Nancy is Nancy. And I, I think that, you know, I think that maybe even COVID has a big part of that that immediate kind of burst to the bubble that we might've been living in, you know, where, um, you know, restaurants are saturating the market. Uh, there wasn't a lot of quality people coming through the doors to execute what we wanted, you know? So we find ourselves even more challenged with training and being more hands-on because the quality of person working in the space, whether front or back of the house doesn't have that natural skill set, And we're, you know, paying more for them because, we have to because that's just the market right now. Um, and, you know, coming out of COVID, I mean, when we furloughed the hundred employees that we had to furlough and, and, and it was our off season, you know, because Newburyport isn't booming in, in March. Um, you know, I, I, I felt like I even went through a little PTSD. I went through that moment of like in 11, yeah. in 11 years, I've never woken up on a 7, 7 a.m. and not had, you know, a purveyor telling me that something's back ordered or a truck's being delayed on delivery or an employee who wants to call out or a shift in something or a modification to a private event or like, you know, that communication went dark probably right after everybody tried to fig like figured out how to do unemployment. That was yeah. like the end of that, you know? Yeah. That was a moment for me when I, you know, I think I actually brought me to tears where I was like, oh my God, like my life has been restaurants. Like I don't know how to just yeah. sit home. I don't know how to, to, to not, be on the go all the time 
And so with that in this moment, I've found myself with that, like, okay, I'm not going to immediately wake up and read my phone anymore. Like, I'm not going to immediately make that connection to, like, social media or yeah. whatever. Um, I'm going to slow down a little bit on that. And I, I might get some backlash for saying this, but it's something that I feel um, is a reality is that, like, I, hindsight being 2020, it's kind of like we were so close to it because it hurts so much in the moment because it's we're like what our lives are crumbling around us. But when we take three, four steps back, I think it's almost like a blessing in disguise that mm-hmm. we were all forced to slow down and all forced to get a sense of what a normal life looks like. So right. some balance looks like, and like you mentioned, the market was oversaturated mm-hmm. is oversaturated. I think this is going to weed out a lot of people that shouldn't be in the industry. They're maybe in the industry for the wrong reasons. Right. And then when we can reopen, should we open more restaurants or what, what else can we do with this space that might be better for the community and not, like opening more restaurants, does the community really need that? Right. Like, is, does the market need that? Like, yeah. we should ask these questions. And I think that, though it might not feel like it right now, like a year or two from now, we might look back at this and be like, we needed this. Right. And listen, I thought that, like, you know, when the COVID thing happened, I thought I had some kind of training in it, right? Because yeah. I worked for you know, New England development when the, when the economy crashed in 2008. And so like we were nickel and diming that budget like crazy. One of the things I learned at that time was like, you know, let's just try to expense manage as much as possible. So ultimately when we come out of this, we already have our, our budget in place because what happens when you open a new restaurant, right? It's like the first year it's like, go, go, go. You know, I'm feeling the hole. Okay. This person doesn't work. I'm going to rehire somebody. I'm going to bring somebody in. I'm going to retrain them. That costs money. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have overtime that costs money. I'm like, you know, not paying attention to how many linens we're using that costs Mm -hmm. money. And so all these things where you're, 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 you know, peak of your business, you're spending a lot more money at that time. And so I think that, you know, now looking at the business, you can evaluate and say, okay, that was getting away from me. This was getting away from me. You know, that expense is significant. You know, I just had a conversation with our chef about chemicals the other day, like, holy Lord, like the chemical piece, you know? Um, and and that's the moment of like getting the staff to connect with the expense that they're realizing um, in the past they didn't really care about. Yeah. Right. Are you building systems around all these things? Are you, are you creating new standards and ways that all these things that you caught and you, that you kind of it sounds like you said the things that you know that might have gotten out of control or out of, away from you. Mm-hmm. Are you reeling those back in and, and trying to create systems around making sure that they, that they don't get away from you again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, we've had better conversations with our accounting office, but on the flip side, like we're having really difficult conversations with people that have our most fixed costs right now, you know, our landlords and um, our insurance guys and all of that about, you know, are we covered for all these things? And more importantly, was the market for our for our spaces, um, you know, far too much, you know, money for square foot to be renting or cam expenses and all of that stuff, you know? Um that, that that's the piece of the puzzle. When you go to a lot of large um, builders or, or landlords that we're dealing with right now, or just, you know, you're pitching your, your proposed plan and your goals, you're realizing like, okay, I think I can hit this number because I'm projecting X amount of sales. But when you're not projecting X amount of sales, but you have certain chemicals coming in for more flow and you used to do, you know, 2000 people a week now, now in COVID, you're maybe doing 500 people a week. Who knows? You know, you're like, wait, I, I have to cut this linen expense. Like, yeah. I have 15 rugs rolling around in the restaurant. I don't know why. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that that's that piece, yeah, that I think we're all kind of growing our eye towards. 
so it sounds like we kind of just get numb to all these ex- additional expenses and we just accept them as necessary. But I think what you're asking is, is it? Is that what, what's being yeah. communicated? Yeah. I, I think that, you know, everybody can look at their payroll line now and think like, okay, is it necessary yeah. to have X amount of people on? Like, is there enough work? Or can we use that person to be more versatile? Like, um, you know, or even just like the the element of, um, you know, large you know, requirements for case drops, whether liquor or food, you know, it's like, oh, so basically I still have to hit 15 cases in order to get a delivery. Like this is wild. It's COVID, you know what I mean? And you start to develop those relationships too with people where you're like, okay, if you can't pivot along with us, but how can we support you? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, we went into a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I'm happy we did because there's some, there's tons of of value coming from our conversation, but back to, the the story you, you're just about to move next door. Right? Oh yeah. Um, no, I think yeah, there's tons. Back there. No, yeah. yeah. You're just about to move next door. Um, you had built say uh, to a successful business. You're getting accolades at this point, recognition mm-hmm. at this point, right? Yeah. Or best of maybe. A couple yeah, we had gotten best of. We had just gotten um, rising star chefs. Yeah. Um, Pat had one for a chef, and I had one for the restaurant. New England restaurant yeah. tour. Yeah. yeah. So what, how did that impact your business? Was there a noticeable change in business after getting that, those accolades or how did that start to shift things? Um, I don't think that it gave us a huge amount of accolade just because like suburbia at that point was still not that competitive. You yeah. know, not a lot of chefs from big cities were like coming into the suburbs at that time. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, 2010, 2011. Um, whereas now I find a lot of chefs are, are considering the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, why do you think that is not to go down another rabbit hole, but what? Uh, probably <laughs> for the exact same reasons of what we just shared, you know, yeah. rents, landlord commitments, smaller programs, um, smaller footprints of space. So they're more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people have moved out of the city. I'm sure even more will move now. And so there's still, a quote unquote foodie that's here that respects food, that loves food, you know? And so they can do a little bit of that and maybe their quality of life will change. Yeah. yeah I think there's going to be a huge shift. And actually I had this conversation with Nick Kukanas. Uh, we're talking about this. He thinks, and I think that this is, there's going to be some level. I think both is true. There's a huge exodus of the, the cities right now because it's not safe. It's the, probably the right. least safe place to be is an, an, on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but that will probably go away and there's gonna be a huge rush back into the cities but i don't think that will ever be to where we were mm-hmm. i think that the the allure of being in the city has probably kind of gone away and i think that we brought the city to smaller neighborhoods and like you said the quality of life is better and it's easier to be number one in a smaller community than it is to be number one in a massive city right right so um i think that that's good though i think it's good that we're spreading out i think we need to spread out i think for our mental health we need to spread out right you know for sure um so Worth going down that rabbit hole, but back to the, the timeline, the story. What happened across the street that you guys saw this as an opportunity? So, so, so Jeff had my husband had basically gotten to a point where he was like, you know, I'm not really sure I want to really want to run a bar. Yeah, and bars were changing. You know, credit card fees were coming into play, and like, you know, all these things, all these additional expenses that weren't before were starting to become a, you know, and essentially taking away a hindrance to the bill, the business itself. So we had just gotten like, I remember like Zagat at the time was like huge, right? And they were like, just giving us like the hardest table outside of the city. And I was like, please don't give me that award because that means that like nobody or like put me in that article because that means like nobody will come to Newburyport because where else will they die? Right. And so we ended up um, making the decision that 
people were asking for things that we could potentially provide by moving across the street, whether it was larger a larger table for dinner, um, private dining opportunities. You know, you couldn't really private dine here. Obviously, we're in a very open floor plan. And the largest table we could do was like eight or ten people. But yeah. that was like, you know, loud. It's loud in here with that. Um, so we made the decision and, and, and the, um, Jeff wanted to invest in the building. I think at that time, you know, it needed to be updated and maintained. He owned the real estate. So the investment made sense. Like if we're going to invest further into Saya, why wouldn't we invest in our own building? So we did that and we moved it across the street and I had a team. I had people that were very capable. Um, and when we moved across the street, you know, we dealt with the challenges of three floors now and going from 50 seats to 150 seats. We tackled private events. You know, it wasn't with, you know, challenges, but we got it done and it was another kind of stressful year. But I loved this space. And one of the things that I didn't think I was capable of initially was opening up this kind of raw oyster bar because the reality was the restaurant was raw that we were buying it from. So I just felt like it wouldn't be enough of like an end to that. People might think like I was just trying to like, you know, change slightly what that menu was. But, um, I certainly had found my inspiration in little oyster bars kind of all throughout. And, um, I thought that I could do an oyster bar, but one of the things my, my husband brought to me was like, well, what if you don't like shellfish? And like, what if you don't like seafood? Like how many times do we go to a raw bar to just like eat oysters and then we move on for our main course? Like, you know, or like, um, and so that's when we decided like, okay, let's do steak and oysters and like a very small, like bistro kind of setting for the steak piece and the raw bar being very present. Um, and so it kind of took on a life of itself. And again, with the team that we had, we started to essentially separate and, tackle the restaurants. Yeah. Um, and that I'm so happy you mentioned the team because when you, when you first went into business, you had such a, you know, a manageable space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hadn't really developed your team yet. You had hired some people, but you really hadn't put together that team. And you gave yourself two years to put together a team, paint the picture of what you said. I had the team paint the picture of what that team looked like and what made that team so tight and capable. <laughs> I think because we were just all grinding it out together, we just had this natural interest in like wanting to support one another. We genuinely cared about each other's success at that time. What did you do? What was happening in your business? And I agree. And I think that is magic. When you feel like you're in it with other people, when you're in it together, I feel like it, you just can go so much further. So what was it about what you were doing and how you made it that, that you created that sense of togetherness? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think I had a little bit of an infectious way of, of myself in that time where, you know, I loved what I was doing and I love, I still love what I'm doing, of course now, but like, you know, I, I think it was an energy that I possessed that people, you know, around me started to feel that way. And then when Pat joined the team, you know, he's so incredibly interested in like, (laughs) you know, so many different ways in the the farming piece of it. And just like trying to speak to guests. And the, and the thing about Pat was like, he was, he was always willing to talk to guests about food and talk to guests about the experience and the difference between that and talking at somebody was huge, mm-hmm. right? Patrick brought people along for the ride in the dining room with him, whether they came for the burger because they had read about it. He would get them to change their mind and go for like a rabbit dish. You know what I mean? And that was the connection to the piece, the puzzle. And then, you know, he um, brought along some individuals who, again, wanted to work with him. And and along with that came, you know, Justin, who ended up being the executive chef of Brian and Oak and Rowan. Um, but, you know, he was he had just 
come to visit some friends in in the North Shore and had read about us. And um, he dined with us exactly where I'm sitting right now and was like, hey, like, can I do a month, uh, a winter stage because I'm leaving Nantucket? And um, Pat was like, yeah, absolutely. Right. And then, you know, with that move across the street, we were kind of like, who will come and who won't? And, you know, um, Jeff and I had a very strong interest in, in Justin and, and we got him to not go back to Nantucket and to stay with us. Um, and he did. And he was a part of the Brian location here, which just, you know, we were very quiet about initially because we were so concerned about, say, his um, movement across the street and like how large it had been expanding. So like we didn't really go like we opened Brian maybe eight weeks after we had moved, say, across the street. And we didn't really kind of announce it to everybody, especially going back to that conversation, media purposes, um, for, for I think, another, like, two more months because I just wasn't emotionally there to have people start critiquing us um, about the move and the changes and what was happening here now. Um, so when you moved across the street, did, did you leave this space behind or did you retain both spaces? I retained both spaces. Okay. I had to make a decision. It's funny. I, I have a memory of my husband and my brother-in-law who does a, all the building piece. Um, we opened Saya on like across the street in like mid-January or something like that. We closed for like four days just to move all the furniture over, but the space was ready to go. We did like an opening party, communicated the new menu by passing it to everybody in the dining space. And then we... Um, we ended up like, you know, wrapping up from that VIP party, if that's what you want to call it. And um, the next morning, Jeff's like, where are you? And I'm like, uh, just getting ready for the day. And he was like, well, I need you at 25 State Street because we're going to start ripping apart this bar. And I'm like, right. And so here's the Carrera Marble Bar. And yeah. so I'm like, OK, so we're going like, OK, you know, um, but that that was kind of it was it was fast, you know, yeah. it was certainly like, OK, what am I doing here? But, um, you know, I believe in the space that we're currently in, even in the moment that we're at right now with COVID and it being a small footprint. And, you know, it only has eight tables, but there's something pretty magical about this space um, for me. Uh, it's obviously the start of our business and our organization. But, you know, even from a dining perspective, like it feels safe, it feels homey. And ultimately, you know, for so many reasons, I guess. A chef can succeed here because, you know, it's small, it's intimate, you can see everybody, it fills your tank. Like, if you're shucking oysters, you're talking to a whole bar that wants to talk to you about oysters, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And so that that's that level of, you know, really connecting with the guests that I think is a, a smart blueprint for people yeah. to get involved in early on. I love it. And uh, to go back to like how we got here, talking about just putting that team together and having mm-hmm. that team and being able to develop, I always say cash flow and people determine your growth. Mm-hmm. And would you have had the same success if you went straight over to that space across the street where you were spread out a little bit and you had more people you had to manage and it wasn't as intimate? You know, you got to establish those relationships in a really warm, welcoming, and not to say that across the street isn't warm and welcoming, right. but you got to, to have, you got to make an impact. And I think mm-hmm. it's so much easier. Think about dropping something on the ground. If it's heavy and large, but flat, it's not going to make an impact. It's just going to stop at the floor. Right. But if you're tiny and skinny, a pointy in the same weight, right? You go so much deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think like that's what a small space does. And mm-hmm. it allows you to develop those relationships and to bring people on and make it manageable. And then, oh crap, I have all these great people working for me, but there's only so much opportunity. Like, what do we do? We go next door and we create opportunity, right? And right. Now there's a whole new wave of opportunity. Was that going through your mind? I mean, it does go through my mind now because obviously with the Boston location, you know, that's how we got to where we were there. But, you know, in the moment, it just felt natural, you know, and I think that that's the thing with 
you know, being a restaurateur or an entrepreneur in general, like having that spirit of basically thinking like, okay, like I'm doing great. Um, what more can we do? You know, sometimes that can be a lot for somebody, but if you're, if you're taking it in a little bit at a time, then you can sit there and say like, okay, we can grow. We could potentially do that. But yeah, absolutely. I I think that opening up in a small blueprint certainly helped me create consistency and, um, allowed me to really connect with the team that would allow me to grow and ultimately let me get to know the community even more. I think that maybe if I was like following my steps from being at, at, 10 center, which was a huge space and going into Saya, which is now 150 seats, maybe there wouldn't have been enough longevity in me and stamina in me to survive that volume for such a period of time. Yeah. So looking back now, um, before we start talking about your third operation, Oak and Rowan, um, any mistakes you made in the transition over there or any other things that knowing what you know now, um, you wish you could have avoided or you could help somebody else avoid. You know, I think that it was um, a part of the situation. I I guess I should say, I don't know if there was like mistakes. I mean, of course, on a day-to-day, like operationally, we always found ourselves reflecting on how to do better, what Mm -hmm. we were going to do there. But, you know, the challenge of a very vertical building became like masterful, like honestly, three floors and like what that does on your body and like how you handle, you know, your your prep is in the basement. You got to get food to the second floor. So four floors. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side, it wasn't for everybody on the team, you know, and it still isn't. Even when we interview now for people for that location, I talk to them. I'm like, okay, do you talk to me about you know, a vertical building, like going up and down the stairs and like, you know, how do you feel about that? And, you know, the same thing for you know, kitchen and chefs, you know, the balance of going from 50 seats to 150 seats in a, in very much like a blink of an eye was, it was hard. And there was a burnout to that piece and then add on private events and, and what we were doing there, which, you know, you can, we don't, we never want to make a mistake when it comes to a guest. Right. But like, if you make a mistake with a guest for the most part, you should be able to win them over if you have the right team in place. Right. Like if the food wasn't hot or something, or there was a mistake or a misfire, right. You can fix it. But when you're doing a private event for somebody that's rehearsal dinner driven or like, you know, second wedding or bridal shower, baby shower, all those things, you know, you can't screw that up. You know what I mean? Like you're just like so connected to that. And it became such a big part of our business there. That was just another layer of work that we were doing. So what advice do you have for somebody who's all of a sudden tripling in size or quadrupling almost? Because you only, how many do you sit in here? 20, 30? Yeah, uh, we're 47 in here when we can have the bar. But yeah, yeah, um, I I think we focus on the pros of all the things that we're going to do. Like, right. I think naturally in any business, when you open it up, you're thinking about, okay, I've got this, I've got that, I can do this, I've got this, but you're not necessarily talking about your failures already, right? Like you don't really look at it and be like, okay, so what will happen if we have 50 people upstairs and then we have the first floor and the second floor moving off of one line? How Mm. do we do that? It's not until we do it that we're like, okay, yeah, this is not going to work. You (laughs) know what I mean? Now we'll look at it like it's, is it really valuable enough for us to use the second floor for dining or should we, you know, write a menu that we could plate half of those dishes on the second floor to execute for the third floor. So the pressure isn't all coming out of this like 750 square foot kitchen space. You know what I mean? Um, now, now we have enough experience to be able to do that. But so we made some mistakes initially because we weren't focused on, well, I mean, we just thought we could do it, you know, we can do this. And then you realize, okay, this is not easy, you know? Um, and, and so I'd say, you know, as hard as it may be in a time where you're, you know, totally stimulated by your potential growth and business or, you know, you're like energized and, you know, the, you do have to have those tough, difficult decisions that could say, you know, 
what can happen if this goes down. Yeah. You know? So um, it was 2015, 2014 when you opened Oak and Rowan? Um, it was 2016. 16. But I okay. signed the lease in 2015. Okay. Yeah. So um, what was that experience like moving from, you know, Newburyport, uh, you know, a smaller community to a, our big city, Boston? Um, yeah. What was that? Any challenges associated with Oh, yeah, with that? for sure. There were so many challenges. Well, well, first off, so many people were approaching me during the period of time. And I think, again, that that might change a little bit, you know, going into the COVID piece. You know, I think, you know, back in 2015, the, the seaport was booming down there. Um, you know, a lot of development was in place, but it became a lot of realtors chasing um, certain Talent. style talent you know whether it was somebody who was maybe a little bit more corporate um which we see a lot of the seaport in you know with bigger chains or there's you know the interest of like still trying to find an independent that might have two to three locations that's already proven themselves um but uh for me it was you know really trying to figure out the right space and going back to the atmosphere of what that could be you know um i think that our stories made sense you know when somebody came to brine um you know, it felt like an oyster bar and they liked the energy here. And if they go to Saya, there's that romance and that old building and the, you know, beautiful ceilings on the third floor and like all of this other sexy, like, you know, moving pieces of the dining room that get you excited and make you let your guard down, you know? And so we were looking at spaces that were like, you know, either still not put in, you know, built yet, or, you know, we're very much, uh, not, not to, didn't have the same charm that we thought made sense for our portfolio. Um, we, when we finally found the space, um, that we did Oak and Rowan in, I didn't even know it was on the market. Uh, we were going for a run, my husband and I in the city, as we were just kind of always looking at spaces. Um, and we decided on the location that we have, um, and we had a team again in place. Like we were ready to move Justin. He was talking about going into the city. I had built some strong relationships with the pastry chef at the time. Um, and we were just ready to kind of like move into something. Um, now the challenge of that space, you know, as we're in COVID is that, you know, it's very much business uh, office workers. And so um, while we wanted it to accelerate into being a little bit more residential, it's not completely full. Um, and the high rises there are are unfortunately affected by the COVID piece of this. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's been four years of like this would be the time where we would start to really see that that nature of repetitive business and more regular clientele and the potential of the GE and like all of that that was going into that that neighborhood. OK, um, I, I, there's so many different things we can talk about right. uh, between. So you were open in 2016, Oak and Rowan. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you, the, what was that transition like going from managing two restaurants that were 200 feet apart from each other, a hundred uh-huh. feet apart from each other to now having to make that commute in and out of the city? Yeah. Um, anything change about how you run your businesses to be able to manage that better? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest successes for me in Newburyport was that I secured somebody that I think is like, even as talented as I am in, in this industry, uh, for a front of the house manager, Giselle. And so she's still with my organization now, but, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that she was like capable of running the floor. Everybody in town already knew her. Um, she had really great energy about herself. And so I felt really comfortable trusting that she would hold the standards that I wanted. Um, of course, um, we, I think it's always really important for management teams to have this natural synergy when you don't have that synergy. It's like really kind of like, you know, a bump in the road in that sense. Like I need to be able to talk to you inside the the restaurant and outside on the telephone. I need to be able to like connect on so many levels. Um, 
And so it was important for me to make sure that there was somebody in place here that could do that. Um, and so we... When you say here, you're talking about... Uh, in say, Newburyport, uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. And so with that, it just became like, okay, I know that my everyday is going to mean that I'm going to like talk on the phone with these guys more than I'm going to see them. Um, I might not be present every day, but I need to find a way to touch base. I need to find a way to connect with the guests somehow. Um, And, you know, I started thinking about, okay, maybe I can do these specific dinners that let me connect with people that I have been seeing in our restaurants for years. So they still don't feel like abandoned in their, you know, so hosting specific dinners, like with the intent to keep connected, connected, okay. like our wine dinner series that we're still even doing right now during COVID. Like that's a moment for me to connect with people yeah. that I know for a long time um, and give them the reassurance that I'm here. I haven't forgotten about that. Yeah. Um, so what is when you were about to make that move or about to expand into Boston? Um, was there anything that you did to your business uh, to reinforce systems or processes to recreate yourself in other people in and in systems and processes to be able to, to ensure that it would stand without you there all the time. Yeah. I mean, a big part was actually shifting electronically to like even seven shifts, you know, it's like I no longer could write these schedules by myself. I no longer could manage everybody's need for a request off time. I couldn't, you know, be on my phone responding to a text message. I needed to have that all kind of centralized for me. So what was that? How did you, what were the the most significant? You, you mentioned leveraging more technology. What what were the other systems you enforce or, or we went replace? to a, a management meeting on a more consistent basis. Okay. You know, pretty often enough, I was just like in the space always, so there was really no need to have constant like creating another meeting after another yeah. meeting. Um, so a big part of that was just like okay, let's start using a way to to manage one another um, and have that you know monthly connection. So it was a monthly connection, and mm-hmm. what did that connection look like? What did that meeting look like? Um. For the most part, I tried not to run it personally, even with like all the questions that I would had, I tried to have them come to the table with their own questions or like their own feedback. We started to review P&Ls. Um, I thought it was really important that the company run pretty trans- transparently. Um, I think that it would be important for them to be able to identify like our expenses, our losses, and how they were managing them. Um, they would start to build a sense of uh, ownership in that mm-hmm. way. Um and, uh, you know, we went through the ups and downs of it because not every restaurant runs at a positive, you know, um, cash flow on a month to month, you know? Yeah. So sometimes they got the emotional, like, oh man, this sucks. We're down significantly this month. And it would be like, okay, like, well, what are we going to do for next month? Mm-hmm. And then they had that personal interest of creating their own events that just weren't created yeah. by me. Um, and, you know, planning to do dinners or paying more attention to, um, how to, you know, do something for someone or we can take on another private event or maybe let's think about a themed dinner. Yeah. And what you're talking about right now is the great game of business and making it a game and realizing that it's the, there's these numbers and so if we track these numbers, what gets measured gets managed is something I love to say. Right. Mm-hmm. And then bringing people in on that and like letting them know that they can influence the numbers by how they show up and the things that they do to get creative to impact these numbers. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, what about other op- other systems that you might have tweaked or improved or reinforced? I mean, I'm not sure I did that much more okay. after that, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure that the team themselves probably started to create their own ways of doing things like, you know, their own ordering of their bar inventory and stuff like that. But like for the most part, I still stayed relatively connected on a day to day basis to nice. be able to help or, you know, make a decision. Is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point regarding your journey, lessons learned, th- things that you do exceptionally well that you think contribute to your success that's worth bringing to the surface before we kind of talk about the future, how you, you know, plan to evolve for the future, if anything, um, now's the time to get it out. Mm-hmm. 
I just say I document a lot, you know, like in anything that I've done, like I was always kind of taught to do that, you know, so it's like I tried to pay attention to, you know, every wine that I tasted. So like right now in this moment, I can't really meet with a rep to taste any wine. So I'm trying to go back on things that I've tasted over the last 11 years and be like, okay, I remember this wine. Like it's so good, you know? So I think documenting has been huge and like just creating the process of like making sure that we continue to, to communicate and, you know, know who's when who and where like somebody's in the dining room and what regulars we have and what are the things that that you document that you think most other restaurateurs don't that they should document oh i'm not even sure i feel like i document i mean we manager log every single night but i think every restaurant does that now to be honest like i try to document our sit downs with my staff um years and years ago we used to call it boxing like sitting down and like going back and forth with an employee who could either provide with pop like you know positive enforcement on something like something they felt was valuable to the restaurant and they could get it out or in a way that they were like being destructive or toxic in the dining room that we could have this one-on-one conversation to identify an issue as opposed to like being very black and white that was like you know written warning written warning verbal warning fire right because progressive discipline is so important Yeah, yeah now it's like you know can we talk about something i'm noticing in you in this weird shift like is there something going on and like i'm documenting it but it's not like a form This is is huge. Progressive discipline. Get Mm -hmm. into that. What is it? So progressive discipline is, you know, the way we're taught is in a way to basically try to be as black and white with an employee as you possibly can. And it's really hard in a restaurant business because there's so much gray so many times. Right. And it's also very much how and when the timing of this, you know, action happens. So it could be like a very vulnerable state where somebody like misbehaves or does something ridiculous on uh, on the middle of a crazy shift. It could be a call out on a very busy night. If the call out happened on a not so busy night, would we have the same reaction? Yeah. So um, in that way, it's very important to have this progressive discipline form in, in a way that's just like, okay, that's a written warning. This is a written warning. And, you know, the next one could lead you to termination, right? Yeah. Why is it so important to document these things? Well, it's um, important, I think, for both ways. One is to cover yourself personally in management, you know, um, unemployment, you know, filing and all that stuff. All the unemployment insurances start to rise on you if you have people that are always claiming. Um, uh, It keeps our management in line, too, personally, the way I see it from from somebody who's managing managers now it gives me a way to understand where they're at with their staff um you know if i keep reading uh, a couple comments in a manager long consistently about a particular employee and they're misbehaving or their you know mistakes or whatever you know my follow-up to that conversation is like should you have a sit down out of the time in which they're doing the action in a way to correct the problem, you know, yeah. um, and then putting them on notice about it. You yeah, know? It forces you to communicate. It forces you when you, when you make it a part of your operation to, to say when, if this, then that, if there's an issue, then there's a follow up meeting Then right. it forces you to get these things out. Sometimes you might notice it. Uh, if you don't have these systems put in place, then it will get away from you. Maybe you never communicate that this person is doing it wrong, or maybe they say that you never said anything, right. which now you can protect yourself from wrongful termination or anything like that. So well, there's a track record saying we, we communicated, there wasn't progress made. Right. And like you said, it's important for them to know where they are because people want to know if they're doing right or wrong. They want to know how they're doing. Right. So you need to set up that time to let them know that they are doing it right or wrong. It's huge. Well, and, you know, during the time prior to COVID and like, you know, when there was the saturated market, you know, we were very much 
looking as management at ourselves and critiquing our management style, right? Like kitchens can't behave the way they did in the past. That, you know, demeanor has to change. The culture has to change in so many ways, right? Like, you know, but specific to management, culture needs to change. And, um, you know, the expectation that we have for our employees could be different than they thought that they, that they were going to be expected to to perform to. Um, and so, you know, if, there's so many inconsistencies and then worries because we were shorthanded. So we were shorthanded going into a shift and then you're kind of just left with this place of like, well, if I give this person a written warning, will they walk on me because there's no loyalty and in return that sets me back even more, right? Yeah. So it became this kind of fearful transaction between a management, uh, somebody in management to an employee because you were like, does this make the situation better or worse? And where does it put me? Mm-hmm. Right. And it becomes very like, you know, selfish in a certain way yeah. where you're like, I, I can't, I can't manage that person, yeah. but it does get to a place most often than not that it, you know, it, it, it bites you in the butt because yeah. then you're like, Oh man, I should have terminated that person when they no called no showed, you know, two weeks ago, but I wasn't busy. Now right. they call out because they think they can on a busy weekend night and my whole team's affected and I'm the one that looks bad because I gave them the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah, Nancy, I've been loving this conversation. You've been dropping gold on us. Yeah. You really have. And I want to make sure we leave time to talk a little bit about what you got going on with Mass Restaurant United, uh, what yeah. we can do um, going into the future. I think this election year is going to be really important for the restaurant industry, right. yeah. um, especially now that we're, our votes will have influence on whether or not we get relief. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where do you, what do you need to communicate to us? regarding what's going on with uh, the Well, first I'd like to say that Mass Restaurant United is an organization that's been created by independents, by a board of really key heavy hitters in in Boston, um, but specifically focused on independent um, uh, organizations. So like Tony Maz, Jody Adams, Jamie Bissonette, Ken Oranger, you know, several individuals who really felt it was important to connect um, and start uh, kind of telling our own stories. Because in our business, at times egos get a part, you know, become a part of this. And we're not often so open to just discuss our vulnerabilities or our concerns, right? We're not sitting here saying like, Hey, we're operating at a negative this month. They're like, Hey, I have $24 in my bank account. If that's what yeah. it was, you know, I read one, listened to one podcast from an entrepreneur restaurateur that I admire and listening to that story. I was like, wow, this what is was crazy. The podcast? I don't mind sharing other podcasts. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time with speaking broadly. Um, and Dana spends a lot of time interviewing different restaurateurs. Um, and in this particular case, uh, she was interviewing a couple of different guys from the South and they were talking about their challenges, um, financially raising money and where they were at when COVID actually hit. Yeah. Um, I also have spent some time, I am a big fan of the welcome conference. So I've been listening to yep. Will Guidera yep. and, um, that just, he just started that podcast like around like two months or three months yeah. ago. Right? And, um, takeaway was a part of that two piece, like on that same podcast. But you know, uh, one of my, my favorite uh, restaurateurs is uh, Caroline's down out in California, and uh, she was talking about you know her challenges with her restaurant group out there um, and the ups and downs of the peaks of COVID that she's been experiencing. And some of her restaurants are sitting dormant; others have opened, and what she's doing. Um, but uh, it's been very open conversation about you know the challenges that we have, and we didn't really have that going into COVID. I think you know if you had a relationship with somebody that you felt comfortable texting and asking like. 
hey, did I screw this up? Or is this normal? Whatever. I think that there was that coaching and mentorship if you had that relationship or like that connection to a certain group. But, you know, it wasn't something that we were openly talking no. about. I mean, like, that's why I started hey, this yeah, podcast. Yeah. Cause like, it, I, like I was listening to all these entrepreneurs sharing their advice about how they're making money online and doing all this stuff. But me being so like in love with the restaurant industry, growing up in the restaurant industry, I was like, why do we hold our information so close to our chest? Yeah. You know, and I've found there's definitely a trend that it's the people who are the most generous with their knowledge mm-hmm. and are willing to share and grow people and to pay it forward that are the most successful because they create success. They, they aren't, we, we think that we are in the, the, the business of creating food, but we're in the business of creating people, right. you know, developing people and mm-hmm. building teams around us. And that's why those people always go on to go do other things. But sometimes you get to retain those people. Right. You know? So anyway, I'm yeah, digress, but no, no. And I, and I think that's a, a big part of, you know, even continuing to listen to your podcast too, you know, like my drive home from Boston more often than not is listening to a a podcast just to decompress or, you know, to, to listen to something that could potentially relate to something that I went through that day or in that week. But, um, but mass restaurant United was very much an organization that caught my eye because, you know, for the first time, a lot of people were openly sharing their concerns and their challenges. And it set a tone for, you know, me personally to feel comfortable being able to share my story. Right. And, um, and to listen to different restaurants in different parts of the state that were going through challenges right now. And, uh, I I feel like Mass Restaurant United is something that a lot of independents should know about in the state, um, but also just the independent restaurant coalition that's happening on a more national level that like Tom Colicchio and everybody's a part of um, in that way. But, you know, we have been in a, uh, you know, an industry that's been wildly affected over the last couple of years. And, you know, whether it's uh, credit card, you know, fees that have been happening, accelerated rents that are happening, um, you know, additional EMAC, you know, insurance responsibilities that we have for employees that we have to pay into, like all that starts to take away from our bottom line. And we've never necessarily had the ability to talk about it openly and say why or like what's the long term on this or, you know, we want to give our employees health insurance, but that's another drawing factor out of our, our bottom line. And, you know, to be able to come to the table and have a conversation for an industry that is such a huge part of our country, um, now's the time to do it. And And so Mass Restaurant United is starting to create this open conversation now very much focused on um, the COVID piece and the relief action that we need in order to get out of this. But we hope to continue the, the organization in a way that we can provide information that people need and um and ultimately give them guidance and and listen to their hardships or their successes and try to circulate it i love it i love it and i'm definitely can support that i mean that's i mean mm-hmm. that's what we're all about um for sure so anything i can do to help spread the word but what i guess what i want to know is what what are you guys trying to tell people to do like what do we need to know i, mean, I think this like should we be voting a certain way like what like will that influence things like what do we need to know well we do know that the relief have uh, relief act currently was put into the the heroes act that um unfortunately got put on a pause from uh donald trump earlier uh this week um when he basically said that he was not going to do anything until he's um elected i think that we kind of all knew that uh the relief or that would come to our industry um was going to have to be after the election um at least i personally had gotten there too i just felt like okay this is going to be like you know not for another couple of weeks um but 
what we're looking for is for people to just take a second and email their story. You know, if it's to email their story to us so we can hear um, what they've got going on and we can be their voice, um, we're happy to do that. Um, And people can reach out to me and and share that story with me. I'm happy to, we're constantly looking as an organization for more stories to share that hopefully will make a connection with somebody. Um, We're asking them to connect with, you know, their local legislature and and send emails either with that same story or just the ask to consider to talk about it. You know, I think that um, we're basically, you know, advocating for our lives right now. And and if it's to advocate for just my own, um, it feels like it wouldn't be, um, it would be selfish. So we we just want to help each other out as much as possible and get everybody out there. See, one thought I have, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I've never been somebody who's huge in following politics or mm-hmm. even just law in general. I, I'm not an organized mind. I don't think organ like you know, I mean, yeah, systems, yeah. processes, procedures has never really been my thing. Um, I do think that this industry is kind of there's a lot of burden on the industry with mm-hmm. systems and regulations that increase our operational expenses. And I do wonder sometimes if people right now are so worried about you know voting a certain way to get a certain like everyone's saying vote. Mm-hmm. I'm for the record. I'm very moderate, mm-hmm. but I lean right because mm-hmm. I believe that we don't necessarily need to re- lean on laws and regulations. I think we have an issue with culture right? and, and we can improve culture. I can understand that. Yeah. Um, and I worry that if we are, are just reacting to get relief right now, what's like, are we, if we go too far left, is our industry going to get way overregulated that, mm-hmm. that you need to be a millionaire to even get into the industry because mm-hmm. of how expensive it is because of the liabilities you have. Like, right. I mean, those are some of my concerns. I don't know if that plays yeah. in now or I think that the challenging part too is like, you know, we don't, there's so many of us that are connected to, you know, the everyday of um, government, right? Yeah. And then it's and then it's not until there's peaks of elections that we start to get very curious and start advocating and start getting after it. Um, I find that right now it's really challenging with both candidates, to be honest. You know, yeah. I'm not seeing uh, I'm not having a positive reaction to Donald Trump and I'm and I'm not having a positive reaction to Joe Biden. And then I think about their seconds and commands and what happens there. Right. I mean, yeah. even with risky business with, you know, uh, Donald Trump contracting COVID this week, you know, it's just like, OK, fear of the unknown. What happens next? You know, yeah. and like um, but, you know, I, I, I said this earlier to you uh, probably while well, not what we were taping, but, you know, I had hope had high hopes that with electing Donald Trump into office, um, potentially he would have like humanized the ability to just become a president, you know, right. and there'd be somebody who would Anybody step up <laughs> like the candidates that we've had yeah. in the past. And, you know, I mean, I just, I just hoping that, you know, people aren't living in fear of taking this position on. I mean, it, it can't right. be easy whomever no. takes it on. Right. No. And, and we talk about Baker locally um, in our state for, you know, how he's performing as our governor and if he's, you know, being too strict and if he should just open it up. And, you know, I can't imagine waking up to the idea of a pandemic and how to manage it. And I'm sure anybody, whether it's Trump, you know, or Baker is sitting here and saying like, I wanted to sign up to to manage the, I don't think anybody would have succeeded in that. that. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, I'm trying to do and make, you know, make clear decisions on people that I think can I can trust and people that I think can um, that care and people that want to make a difference. And I think that's what we whoever's listening to this before election, if it comes out before then, I hope that that's the 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 route that you go. Right. It's not just about like whether or not you want to be a Republican or be a Democrat. I think we just have to get people out to vote. Yeah, I think too often people are voting for 
a person and they forget that it's a greater picture. It's not right. just a person. It's a there's a greater picture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't need to make this a political podcast. No, and I just I wish there was a lot more honesty in it. You know, because yeah. media plays a big part in it, and then you start weighing on you on as you know a whole toll because you're just like sitting here thinking like, okay, is this the truth? Is that the truth? Is that fact? Or is this the fact? Like, I think know, the truth is it's all do. true. Yeah, but that that's the world we live in. Right. That it's not black and white. That right. it's circumstantial. That both almost all the time both sides have rational thoughts or have reasonable ways of thinking it's about mm-hmm. finding a balance you right. know um anyway i think yeah. we've had a great conversation yeah. i love this conversation uh, thank you for creating awareness about mass restaurants united uh it's really great stuff what you guys are doing um one question i ask before we go to the speed round is the, the mission statement is to inspire empower and transform the industry how have you personally transformed over the say uh 10 years since going into business for yourself I'd say that I've transformed just in a way that I'm not trying to take myself so seriously. You know, like I'm trying to find the fun in in the business, especially now when it's so intense. Um, and I think that I want to make a change that ultimately other people can succeed from. I love it. Um, okay, one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll do a true speed round. Head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable to find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended POS on the show by a landslide. So there's a bunch of reasons why Toast is being recommended on the show, but I'm finding the most common reason is because of their customer support. And now, while I don't think you'll need their customer support all the time, it when that Friday night rolls around and there is a question you have and you're busy, you're going to wish you were able to get right into that customer support and they will be there for you. Uh, the other reason why Toast is always being recommended on the show is because of how many other platforms integrate with Toast. So you can literally marry all the technologies in your company together. They'll, they'll work together. They integrate together and you can turn on these additional features as you need them. It's like flipping a switch. It's that easy. So that's why I love toast. That's why my guests love toast. And again, if you want to learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, I'll send you a check for a thousand dollars when you become a customer. You've been hearing it a lot on the show lately. Plate IQ. Find out why Plate IQ is the most intelligent and quite frankly, the most intuitive way to remotely manage your accounts payable. With the new spend management feature, you can issue virtual or physical cards directly, or you can even connect your existing corporate cards to get visibility into historical and real-time card activity. And when you're using that virtual card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And I haven't even mentioned all the insights you can get with Plate IQ Insights. You can compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, location, and the list goes on. You can get alerted if a price is outside of your contracted terms. You can get access to a hot list of real-time price changes, and you can even categorize your spend analysis. And I know we all have to pay bills, and it sucks to pay bills, but it sucks a whole lot less with Plate IQ's bill pay feature. You can see what is due when. You can schedule payments by check, ACH, or card. And man, how user-friendly is that calendar for scheduled pending and paid invoices. Plus, you can hold on to your flow. No money leaves your account until it is received by vendor. Here is your call to action. Head to www.playiq.com unstoppable. That's play like the thing you eat off of. IQ like your intelligence dot com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you'll get 25% off implementation.
We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, my time spent with myself all by myself. Yes. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, probably that I, um, oh, I'd say probably that I give too many people too many chances. Mm. What is one thing you look for or question you ask when you're growing your team? And I remember your, I know you listened to your episode, so you remember your question yeah, from the last time too. I think so. Um, I, I'm right now. I often just ask people what they're eating and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you looking for anything in particular? No, I just want them to f- like sh- just talk because again, I think that synergy is so important. Like I want to come in and be like, where'd you go eat? What'd you yeah. go do? You know, because that's what I'm doing. So yeah. I want to connect in that way too. You know, what is uh, your biggest challenge today? Uh, my biggest challenge today is I think continuing to grow loyalty. Uh, mm. I think when it comes to uh, diners and making them, you know, connected to us as a form of as instead of you know Instagramming here I am and it's hot and awesome and tomorrow I'm going here because it's hot and awesome. Like I think there's an opportunity now to just grow loyalty from your staff, but also um, with your guests. I love it. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team this is a core value a way to be a way to act uh, a way to be a way to act maybe just positive and positive energy i think they'd say that about me like i i often talk about like the energy you put out is what you're going to get mm-hmm. in and like if you come in like you know guns blazing and you're in a bad mood nobody's going to come out of the day feeling positive and energized yeah. you know what i mean like attracts like yeah for sure um what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner the last time you were on the show you recommended danny Myers setting the <laughs> yeah, table I what know. else I've been reading so many books lately. Um, Yeah, I do. I I do. And honestly, I've kind of given up on TV and a little bit of media just burns me out. But, um, you know, I also use a lot of one minute manager when it comes to my team. Um, he, he does a lot of writing, uh, and I think it's super important that, you know, people can pick up something quickly that they can kind of go back to in our industry and like kind of, I don't know, refer to it. Um, so I think it's important to have those like quick little books. But also, um, you know, a lot of the conversations with um, uh, not to talk to strangers and like all that kind of emotional intelligence really yeah, has me going. That was a great book. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, his name's escaping me, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's escaping me, too. Because um, I was going to introduce him to that. I want to say Seth Godin. I know it's not a Seth Godin. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. His, yeah. his, all of his books are yeah. incredible. Talking to Strangers is a really good book. Um, what was the biggest lesson you got from that book? <sighs> well, I find that the emotional intelligence piece just kind of gets me going, really, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I just feel like I, I've listened to him on podcasts with, like, Super Soul with Oprah and, like, his way of, like, breaking down how we transfer information is so important to mm-hmm. me. Um I don't know. I think, uh, sorry, did I cut you short? No, 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 go ahead. Well, one of the things I think is huge from that book um, is that it's, we've, I love human nature because we mm-hmm. we we don't realize how much new human nature affects business. Because mm-hmm. what do we say? Business is all about relationships. Right. So we need to know how people function and work to understand what's going on. And I think that there's just a lot of like we live in a world today that we never meant to live in. We never evolved to live in this current style of like. I don't know, humanity where there's just so many people where we have access to so much information and it's, it's overwhelming. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we generalize so much mm-hmm. and I think we have to, because 
how else are we all going to know it all? There's so much to know today, oh, right? Yeah. To be politically correct, to be considerate of everybody. Oh, it's we, heavy. We have to remember yeah. that if people, if somebody is ignorant, maybe they're not trying to be an asshole or a jerk. Maybe they just don't know, right? Right, and that we we tend to th- think that two or three people represent an entire group of people, mm-hmm. and that those two or three people usually are the ones that we assume others are like. So we have to keep in mind that like. You have to. You just have to have an open mind constantly. You right. have to really just try to understand. First, seek to understand, then seek to be understood. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good takeaway from that book: is to not generalize, to know that we're we have innate flaws as being humans, and just to try to understand. Yeah, you know, I was also just thinking as you're talking about that, like Simon Sinek, he's super um, in- interesting um, TED talker as well as he's got a, a book that he just put out. But um, you know, one of the things he was talking about was how he was speaking. Um, and uh, he was with like uh, uh, he, he was not speaking for Apple. He was uh, doing a conversation with like one of their. Um, he was doing a TED talk with one of their competitors, and he got in a car with one of the executives of this company. And he started sharing the idea that you know he really liked um, the Apple um, product versus his, and the executive like never like went to that negative place with him. He was like, yeah, they're a great company and they're really productive. And like, it just became this, again, this collaborative piece of like conversation versus he was like, I wasn't really sure what I was trying to get out of that, you know, to have them speak negatively about the company or whatever. Um, But the interest was that, you know, he was surprised that he decided at that point to say, oh, I really like another product versus your own. Instead, the response was positive and like, yeah, they do a good job. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I think that we don't take enough time to reflect on our day to day. Absolutely. And uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced. So this is uh, something that is generally a humans behind the, the service. You know, not, it's not a technology. It's not a system that you're plugging into your business, but uh, somebody you're outsourcing to do a job for you. Mm-hmm. Who's that organization? Um, I have a woman in town um, called One Oak, and she does a really good job with a lot of HR-related conversations. Um, she is working with a lot of independent uh different industries but a lot of independent business owners to just kind of help with uh, especially now with like ppp stuff um general conversation about you know uh, progressive discipline um just just the the nitty-gritty of stuff where you realize like i could use a second to yeah. just have a conversation with somebody about if i did this right or did this wrong because yep. it's it's super scary but the purpose of this question is to help good people connect with good people so that was one oak mm-hmm. uh pr is that the name um, uh, hr hr mm-hmm. thank you one oak hr and this is um not quite the last question we're almost there though uh, what is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your organization that has had a huge impact on communication efficiency profitability anything along those lines I mean, I'd, I guess I, I feel like we've plugged them, but seven right. shifts, right? Yeah. I mean, like, and listen, like, you know, we've talked about them um, throughout the conversation today, but we spent a lot of time looking at other companies. You know, I tasked our management team for each one of them to pick one and find it and yeah. kind of come together. And uh, we've seen them grow significantly. But the most important part that I find with seven shifts um as opposed to maybe the others, granted I didn't get into a, a contractual business with them, but um, was their seven sh- uh, their uh, service, um, yeah. especially their late night service, because that's so important, right? We're not in a business that's nine to five. And so most of the times when things crash, it's typically at a time where most are sleeping. Yeah. yeah? So Absolutely. you're just like, oh man, I need like, I need to be able to, um, you know, fix this problem or like I need to be able to do my log and the systems like, you know. Yeah, and that's huge. Back. I think a lot of time when people, when we're researching or doing our shopping for these these tools and services, we just look at the, the price, right? Yeah. And we forget that like when the shit hits the fan, which is going to happen, Nothing. 
like you need that customer support and it might be an extra whatever dollars a month, but you're going to get that back. Oh yeah. When you're not, when look, how much business you're going to lose when that thing's not working, how much, how many balls you're going to drop when something doesn't work the way it's supposed to, you know? Yeah. So you really have to weigh into those things and there's a lot of options out there when it comes to labor management. So. Yeah. And nobody wants to start their day already fixing a problem. Yeah. You know, it's better to wrap the day fix with a problem fixed. Yeah. So if like, you know, it happens at nine o'clock at night, I know it. So, you know, it's unfortunate because somebody else, you know, the person who could be on call for that call um, has to take the call. But it's better, I think, to, to wrap the issue, fix it yeah. versus like starting in the morning and it's everybody's problem. Right. Yeah. And f- just for the record, I vet my sponsors and yeah. I really try to make sure that uh, I go after sponsors that are being recommended on the show because if I'm going to be promoting a product or service, I want it to be something that's going to help our listeners. So, guys. Please use our links or let these sponsors yeah. know it's Restaurant Unstoppable that's sure. turning you on because that, you have no idea how much that supports the show. If, if we're sending people their way and they're loving the product, like they will continue to support the show yeah. and we can grow this sucker and take it to the next level. So thank you for using my links in advance. And this is the last question. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories mm. of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? So one of them I'd say is um, still be you. Mm-hmm. Like live this life for yourself. Don't necessarily let it be like your this this industry be your whole life or like any business work that you do. You know, you need to have your sense of independence away from everything that you're doing every day. Like a lot of times I find that struggle where, you know, everybody just knows me as my restaurants, but I still am who I am, right? Be you. Be you. Um, The second one I'd say is, um, you know, lead with intention. Um, Set those intentions weekly, daily, whatever it may be, short goals, long-term goals, but like daily affirmations and intentions are super important. And I would say continue to do that. Number three. And number three, I'd say, I'd, I'd have to be around food or drink. Like I'd have to like find a way to like, you know, leave everybody with the, I don't know, a, a place where they can <laughs> have really great food and really great drink and, and maybe give a list yeah. of where to go to eat and drink. So be well, <laughs> live intentionally, uh, eat well. <laughs> That's good, right? Yeah. Um, this has been an incredible conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming back on the show for a second time and really helping me take this podcast in the direction I want it to go with. Like where we talked about, like it's not about how many relationships you have. It's about reinforcing those relationships you already have, right? Yeah. And going stronger. You helped me do that today by coming back on the show. Thank so you. thank you so yeah. much. And how can we connect if we want to come join your team or anything like that? Um, Caswell Restaurants, with the plural, Caswell Restaurants is always definitely the best way to reach out to us. Um, it links you to all of our restaurants. It also links you to like personal Instagram um, and social media outlets. So if people want to get in touch that way. Yep. And I'm not sure what episode number this is going to be. So stick around for the closing thoughts. I'll drop that on you. Um, and um, you, the last time you were on the show, you called about Barbara Lynch yeah. and Joanne Chang. Uh-huh. I have not gotten either of them on the show, but I've been in contact with both of them. Yeah. So I'm still going for it. It yeah. just it hasn't worked. Uh, Barbara and her people actually agreed, but we want to wait until after COVID. So maybe this will be my cue to tap her on yeah. the shoulder again. Um, I'd love to make that happen. And um, I think that's that. So this is where I say thank you so much. Thank and there you. is no questioning, Nancy. You are unstoppable. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cheers. 
There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys all found value in today's show. Thanks again to Nancy Batista Caswell for coming back on the show for a second time. And special thanks to our sponsors. Guys, these these sponsors are taking a risk right now. Uh, they're being brave. They're getting out there. They're spending they're spending money again. And um, they're, they're, they're leading the way. And uh, I want to reward them for taking a risk and getting out there, being more liberal with their money and supporting Restaurant Unstoppable with their sponsors. So let's thank them by using these links, by showing them that uh, this podcast does has reach and that you guys do pay attention to what our guests are recommending on the show. And just a special thanks to the sponsors and a special, special, special thank you to you guys if you are using those links and helping me uh, continue to show up. And uh, I mean, lots to take away from today's conversation. Uh, Nancy is just a powerhouse. I really admire this woman. Um, Crazy to think of she got started so early and she just, you know, she treated it like she owned it from day one she treated it like she owned it and she and she led the way she she was um she led by example and i think that's how she was able to garner so much respect because she people knew that they would never outwork her and when you show up to work every day and your leader is hustling and and setting the the pace and setting that tone it just goes so far it cuts so deep and i think that that came out in today's conversation and just special thanks again for nancy uh to nancy for coming on the show and one thing I, I think Nancy does really well, she creates opportunity for growth within her within her organization. She'll move people up, and I think that is a critical element to success today in the restaurant industry, which is why we have Nick Cirillo joining us later this week on Wednesday live in the network to talk about building a tangible channels of growth within your organization for your people and literally how to to map out a path for growth for your people so when they come on your team they can look to see okay wow this is where i can be uh, in x amount of years if i do x amount of things and how to think intentionally like that so you attract onto yourself the best people who do want to grow with you and when you do provide that growth they stay with you much longer it's a very very powerful thing when you think intentionally and you grow your business intentionally for growth. So um, growth for your employees, just to make sure that's clear. So that's what we're going to be talking about on Wednesday. I'd love for you guys to come join the network. I'll have a link in the show notes, episode 757. Uh, so head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 757 for a summary of today's discussion. Plus I'll link to the network. You can join right now. Your first 30 days are on me and you can join us live on Wednesday for that workshop. All right. That's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around this long and until next time, peace out.